Cruise Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. For more, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity aside from possibly cash like more hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you're wrong. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're right. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Well, hi, Matt. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, Stuart. This is our fourth or fifth take here, which is Something which like is that. shocking. We've done over 110 podcasts, and we can't get the intro right, the first sentence of the intro <laughs> Literally, right. Literally, it's the first sentence of the show. <laughs> <laughs> I've always said we'll have it right by episode number 200. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto, here with multiple co-hosts who will introduce themselves. Stuart? Yes, that's me. I'm still Stuart Brigham. And uh, Paul? Yeah, Ben, Paul Williams is here with you. And Chris Chu, I'm here. (laughs) And Chris Chu as well, yes. Chris is always with us for the Hotcakes episodes. Chris, why don't you tell them them about what we do on this Hotcakes show? Well, today is another monthly edition of the Curbsiders version of a journal club. This month, our articles include topics on cancer survival among patients pursuing treatment on complementary medicine, the effect of body weight on effectiveness of preventative aspirin dosing, strategies to promote physician leadership, as well as respiratory symptoms in those with marijuana use, as well as MRSA risk among patients with penicillin allergies. I'm very happy to have our guest, Dr. Netta Freya from Primary Care Rap fame to join us for our discussion. Yeah, and, and before before we introduce Netta, let me tell you how great she is. Dr. Netta Freja is a general internist in the Baltimore area. She attended medical school at the University of Maryland School of Medicine, stayed there to complete her residency in internal medicine, and then served as chief resident. Following her training, she joined the University of Maryland School of Medicine, medicine faculty as assistant professor of medicine and assistant dean of student affairs, where she created and led many successful educational programs and won numerous teaching awards. Netto has written for the Washington Post and produced public radio pieces for WHYY, which is Philadelphia's NPR station. Earlier this year, she became a senior medical editor at Hippo Education, where she, she serves as editor and host of the Primary Care Reviews and Perspectives podcast. She sees patients in Howard County, Maryland, and continues to teach medical students as a part-time assistant professor at the University of Maryland School of Medicine, Netta, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I am ridiculously excited and such a super fan. So this is legitimately a dream come true. And we are all shocked that anyone is a fan, (laughs) especially (laughs) someone with credentials like yours. Um, So but we are thrilled to have you on the show. And and I wanted to give you I know we kind of get right into things tonight uh, because it's, you know, it's a shorter show for us, but. Can you give the audience a one-liner about yourself, like other than some of the stuff included in the bio? Yeah, sure. So just listening to you read that bio, uh, I think maybe the big takeaway of this year for me has been leaving uh, the full-time profession of academic medicine, which I never thought I would leave. I thought I was going to be a lifer in medical school faculty and education administration. And so this past year of going into community practice and working for uh, an education company that puts out MedEd podcasts like Hippo Education has been a huge change that I never would have expected. So I guess if that's any, um, if there's any pearls 
in there for your listeners that you can have really wild and crazy and unexpected career changes that you yourself would never have anticipated and be really kind of happy and psyched as a result. I hope that that's encouraging. And I'm always happy to chat with anybody about it over Twitter or any other medium. That's great advice. I we we talk about careers a lot on the show, and uh, I'm a big proponent of trying to create a unique career and just kind of find yourself somewhere you never expected. It's it's great to see people who have done it successfully. Well, I'm so excited, and I support you wholeheartedly, Matt. Thank you, Paul. I, I see the wheels turning there, Paul. I see the wheels turning. <laughs> so one person here supports you. You'll get that. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like every time like we're talking on the show, I just see Paul like kind of like rocking. Like I could tell the wheels are turning and he's just like, he's like, which line am I going to throw? Uh, <laughs> uh, all right, Paul. So, so uh, now we should probably get on to the show. All right, Netta. Um, I think you, since you're our guest, you, you bring us our first article today. Do you want to tell us a little bit of something about it and actually why you picked it? Yeah, sure. Um, so thanks for letting me go first. So uh, this article is called Complementary Medicine, Refusal of Conventional Cancer Therapy and Survival Among Patients with Curable Cancers. It's by Johnson et al., and it was in JAMA Oncology, uh, published online July nineteenth, two 2018. So the reason that I picked this article was it actually made a splash all over my Facebook feed. I had physician friends and non-physician friends weighing in on this article. Some were adamantly in agreement with the article's findings. Some really didn't like it at all. It seemed to be generating a lot of controversy, and it made its way into the lay press. So the New York Times covered it, Time, NBC News. So um, I think the helpful background as to why the article matters is that complementary and alternative medicine is actually a multi-billion dollar industry in the United States. And very often patients may underreport how often they seek these services. They may not tell us that they're actually having, you know, sort of herbal uh, medicine in addition to their conventional therapy or that they're going for things like acupuncture. And some past studies have suggested that up to 88% of cancer patients use complementary medicine as part of their treatment and two-thirds believe that it will actually prolong their lives. Some studies have suggested one-third believe it will cure their disease. So there are these perceptions out there, and this article sought to find out who are the patients using complementary medicine to treat cancer and what's the relationship between that use and then both adherence to conventional treatment and also cancer survival. What I one of the questions I had for this was they they said that there were 258 patients out of 1.9 million that used complementary and alternative medicine. Was that did they was did they select 258 out of like a bigger pool or was it just was that all that they could identify out of that whole group that had used the the complementary medicine? I think that was all that they could identify and you know the way that it was it was uh designated, the way that it was defined, sort of generated some controversy in and of itself. I think the the terminology that they used was cancer treatment administered by a non-medical personnel. And so some members of the integrative health community actually found that pretty offensive. So based on their criteria, that was who they were able to find. And then they matched that small number with 1,032 
non-complementary medicine uh, control group members that were matched by age and race and cancer type and stage and a few other factors. Yeah, I was just surprised out of that many people that they only identified like 258. So maybe that everyone wasn't admitting that they were using it. Exactly. Exactly. So what type of outcomes did we find from this article? So it's really interesting. They found that the use of complementary medicine was associated with higher refusal rates of what we think of as conventional treatments, so surgery, chemotherapy. Uh, the difference in radiation was pretty stark, 53% refusal in the complementary medicine group versus 2% in the control group, and also hormone therapy. And then getting back to that issue of survival, uh, the use of complementary medicine was associated with poorer five-year survival rates, so 82% versus 86.6%. I think a really interesting uh, kind of corollary to this and their findings was that once they actually factored in adherence with conventional treatment, there was no longer this association with increased risk of death with complementary medicine. It really seems to be that the, the refusal of conventional treatment was what might account for that survival difference. And this is this is really interesting. So I'm looking at the, an article on CNN. They actually interviewed Johnson, and so when they're looking for people to identify as uh, as being in the in the complementary medicine arm, he said, uh, "So we identified people who are more likely to choose alternative medicines, and it's usually people with higher income who are more well educated, who are healthier, and who live in the West and Pacific regions." This what's interesting is that you have you have individuals with higher income, well educated, healthier, and they're and still the risk of death was higher. That's exactly right. And that's actually uh, could be viewed as one of the flaws or weaknesses of the study, that if anything, you would think that based on the the characteristics of people who seek out complementary medicine as part of their cancer treatment, that if anything, they might have higher survival rates, and yet mm -hmm. they didn't. So it really is striking. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Right. So what are the strengths of this article? So, you know, I think... They view just the very um, the very topic and the very objective of the study as novel in this terrain. Uh, other studies have looked at uh, cancer patients' attitudes towards complementary medicine, but none have ever looked at actual survival statistics and rates of adherence with conventional treatment. Um, and also, uh, one strength could be that there, you know, the the degree to which they were able to match the complementary medicine group with the control group, um, both on demographic and clinical characteristics. So, Netta, so what, what would you say is the bottom line from this from the study? Oh, and I, I would just like to interject. Uh, Netta, we have a oh. very sophisticated yeah. uh, yes. hot cakes rating system, <laughs> which uh, in which a uh, it actually was invented by our very own Paul Williams, who loves it. I... And... <laughs> hate it so much. <laughs> I know you do. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so one, uh, you know, you can range anywhere from one hot cake all the way up to a full stack, which is six, uh, or a half a stack, which is like, you know, kind of so-so. Or French toast. <laughs> <laughs> I would probably put this at about a four. I think it's good for us to know that if our patients uh, 
are choosing complementary medicine in lieu of conventional treatments for cancer, that they could have worse outcomes as a result. Mm -hmm. And in all the controversy that ensued and some of the people who really found fault with the article, the senior author, Dr. Yu, kept saying, you know, look, all I'm saying is that healthcare providers should be proactive in discussing the use of complementary medicine with our patients and emphasizing the importance of adherence to conventional therapy. So no one is telling any patient you shouldn't do acupuncture or you shouldn't give some herbal remedies a try. What, what the message is, is the gold standard treatment should be the foundation, and then you can pursue these other measures for quality of life and for whatever else they may be helpful for. I really I like that point a lot. I will say, I don't know what everyone else's take was, but sort of on social media, just the tone of the medical community's response to this article, I found almost, uh, I'm trying to think of a, a, a word that will not get me in trouble, but it just seemed kind of judgy and sort of told you so in a way that I found very not helpful often. Yes. Uh, so I think being proactive and discussing with the patient and just sort of discussing the evidence in a non-judgmental way rather than see what happens if you don't actually listen to doctors is is not I'm not sure if I'm making myself clear, but I just I worry that we are a little bit shrill in our response and we should be, again, just viewing this as a partnership and we're just armed with more information to help our patients. Completely. I agree. Completely agree. All right. We're totally. going to move on to our totally. next article. And so actually, Matt has the next article, which um, actually was discussed quite frequently in my resident clinics this this week. Um, do you want to take it away, Matt? Sure. And, and maybe you can help me out with this one, Chris. Uh, tell me if you came to any smart conclusions about it. This was by <laughs> Ro Rothwell et al. And it was effects of aspirin on risk risks of vascular events and cancer according to body weight and dose analysis of indiv individual patient data from randomized trials. And this was in the Lancet. Uh, and we'll, of course, link it in the show notes. And there's a bunch of also interesting editorials that went along with this one. And I think where you can start with this is that, so I remember like looking at like USPSTF guidelines and they recommend aspirin for prevention of stroke in women. And I was like, oh, I always wondered, you know, why is that? This study sort of looked at weight-based dosing of aspirin and does, does a patient's weight De uh, determine whether or not they will have a cardiovascular benefit from taking the low-dose baby aspirin. In our country, it's an 81 milligrams, but I guess in other places, it ranges from 75 to 100 milligrams of aspirin. And in this study, they looked at trials. The trials had been done from anywhere from the late 70s to like the early 2000s, and the follow-up kind of varied, but in general, it was like three to six years, but some of them were 10 years. There was one trial that had like one year of follow-up, so what they did was they they took all the individual patient data from all of these trials and they combined them in a meta-analysis. They separated the patients into 10 kilogram weight ranges, so 50 to 59 kilograms, 60 to 69 kilograms, and so on. And then they analyzed the data looking, does low-dose aspirin have a cardiovascular benefit, meaning does it prevent cardiac events? What they found is that it only prevented cardiac events between the weights of 50 and 69 kilograms, and there was about a 23% decrease in cardiovascular events in that group. The hazard ratio was 0.77. What was interesting is that, and what was alarming, is that if you gave low-dose aspirin to somebody that weighed between 70 and 90 kilograms, they, they still had a bleeding risk, but they didn't have a cardiovascular like benefit. Um, That's like all my patients. Yeah, 
<laughs> exactly. So the 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 authors they they noted Stuart that this would be like eighty percent of men and fifty percent of women uh, in this trial were not would not have like benefited from the aspirin they were getting. And so the the benefit with like aspirin for primary prevention, everyone thinks, oh yeah, it's great. I take a baby aspirin every day. I'm going to live forever. And when you look at like the the full group, the overall group, there was only about a twelve percent reduction, and it's like a modest benefit. So. Uh, I think that this weight-based thing, there really is something to it. And there are a lot of the editorials kind of speculate on on why this might be. Stuart, I know you're an aspirin nerd, so do you have any yeah, thoughts so on I, this? I'm just looking at the full dosage aspirin, the 325. So it, it doesn't look like there was any significant reduction in the hazard ratio despite the 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 weight. I think there's a lot of confounders here. So I, I don't know what to think about this, to be quite honest. Yeah, I, I think one of the interesting things about the article that they pointed out is like since this was between like the late 70s and early 2000s, yeah. medical therapy has changed. I mean, now we have uh, diabetic drugs that can lower mortality and also statins right. are much more ubiquitous. So maybe the, the maybe it even overestimates how helpful aspirin is. I just I just think I think there's too much heterogeneity in this data. And uh, so I don't know how to interpret it, to be honest. Yeah, uh, that I think it's I think it gives us an interesting hypothesis and is um, makes is something to think about. And I, I completely agree. This is something that needs a lot more study and much more, um, you know, um, prospective studies um, before I think I would make any big changes. But I, I agree with Stuart in terms of uh, the heterogeneity of the data. Just is yeah, you know, it, it's the same thing that we have issues with many of our like systematic reviews and you know if you just don't have good good uh, homogenous data is that the opposite of heterogeneity i don't know um then it's just i I don't think you can make as good uh (laughs) what do you got there Stuart? so i was going i was going to say even with the best data that we have when you look at the number needed to treat for aspen it's still like one in 1600 patients for number needed to treat to prevent the first heart attack you know one in 2000 for uh, non-fatal heart attacks, non-fatal strokes at one of 3,000. I mean, the, the numbers are pretty abysmal just at baseline for aspirin. So, you know, I, I think it is time for us to look at the utility of continuing to use aspirin for primary prevention. And, and I know cardiologists out there are just going to, like, want to destroy me for well, saying I, that. For me, the bottom line is someone who's at risk should take it. But someone who's not, for, like, a, a moderate or low-risk patient, I just I don't see the, the, the long-term benefit, considering the, the number need to treat is is so incredibly high. Number need to harm is pretty close to number need to treat. So I, I don't know. I think, and I genuinely mean this, this is not me trying to be funny, but probably one of my favorite things about medicine is we are in the year of our Lord 2018 having a conversation about this new kid on the block aspirin. That <laughs> time somebody looks at the right dosage for it. Like I just, I love we're still having this conversation. So I'm getting the impression not, not too many of you are going to actually be changing your practice as a result of this. I'm going to start handing out full dose aspirin to everybody twice daily. Oh, have fun with that. Have fun with all those bleeds you're going to have afterwards. <laughs> yeah. Matt, what, what type of hotcakes are we going with here? Uh, I would say I, th- I would give it a half stack because it's while I don't think it's practice changing, it's certainly like questioning a practice that we're currently doing. Um, but mm. I, none of the none of the editorials I read, no one suggested how this was going to change their practice. Um, maybe, maybe it would change my practice in that if somebody was more than 70 kilograms and had a high risk of bleeding, I would stop their aspirin for primary prevention. I think this is pancake batter. (laughs) Wow. Those are fighting words. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Stuart. Well then let's, let's take a look at your article. (laughs) 
Yeah, sure. So uh, first of all, I've got a couple questions for you. So this one's for you, uh, Paul. So you know who tends to own a marijuana dispensary? A bud tender. How about how about who normally runs a successful restaurant? A chef, right? So who do we think would be the ideal person to run a clinic, a hospital? Of course, a business executive, right? So and this is this is something that's, that's bothered me for years and years and years. There's an article by uh, Ann Good and Burke. It's the uh, Value of Physician Leadership. This was published in 2014 in the Physician of or in the uh, Physician Executive Journal. So, and it, it it looks to answer one specific question, and that is, um, what happens when physicians actually run hospitals? What does it actually look like? What does it do to quality measure scores? What does it look... Now, this is a, a, a essentially a review article written in the what looks like almost like an editorial. Um, it does cite some interesting data, and I've got some other articles that should be in the uh, the show notes that give some more updated perspective on this, because one of the, the concerns was that this was published in 2014 before the current political climate. But what it shows... And the bottom line for or the the bottom line for me, and and I'll, I'll say this first before I go over the strengths and weaknesses. Uh, so for me, the bottom line is that physicians who take an active leadership role in in a healthcare system, they they have the potential to positive to positively influence institutions in multiple different ways. So just like a bud tender who runs a marijuana shop or a chef who runs a restaurant, they understand the business that, that's being run at the granular level. And understanding that perspective helps to understand how you can improve the delivery of healthcare without just looking at the the overall business aspect. And interestingly enough, some studies, and there's some heterogeneity in, in the data across the board, but uh, more studies than, than not show that or... Uh, show that a positive impact even on things as significant as financial margins. But in general, physician-run hospitals tend to have lower hospital-acquired infection rates, readmission rates, improved patient satisfaction, and they also have uh, more lean management, uh, better performance management, and overall just overall management in general. And interestingly enough, and I think this makes the most sense to me, is that job satisfaction across the board is generally higher in physician-run hospitals. So the weaknesses... I think bottom line is that this was in 2014, but I don't know if that I consider that a, a significant weakness. It's also not a uh, uh, it's it's not a, a primary literature study. It's more of just an overall survey of the of the current study. So I think that that is certainly a weakness, but but it's pretty comprehensive in nature, and I think that that lends to its strengths. Actually, I like your restaurant metaphor because I think it's kind of apt. Because I will say that chefs are probably not necessarily trained to do business management; like they're very <laughs> right. good at creating food. And they're good at mentoring and they're good at sort of training other chefs, but I don't know that part of yeah. their training is necessarily running a business. And I think Correct. that's actually probably comparable to physicians. I, I'm not arguing your point, but I think it might actually make an argument for even including that as a more rigorous part of our training. Yeah. And, and in fact, one of the articles that I cited specifically looks at that and says that uh, medical education should help prepare physicians to take on leadership roles in hospitals and healthcare systems. So that was this was another article that should be in the show notes. And I, I think that that's the way that ultimately we're going to go when we look at uh, team-based healthcare, when we look at multidisciplinary medicine, that physicians should be viewed more as a, a, a leader in healthcare and not just the deliverer the, or the executor of healthcare. I agree completely. And I think 
you know, the points that you both bring up in terms of we need to be at some point along the way in our education provided with the tools, provided with some additional skills development and training. Because, you know, when I was reading this paper, Stuart, I thought, oh, this is amazing. They're making such a fantastic case. Yes, physicians should be leaders of more organizations. And then I kept thinking, well, but how and with what uh, support, with what training? And I'll put in a quick plug. Um, I was able to learn about and participate in a program that's put out by the double AMC called LEAD, and it's it's truly just leadership training skills for early to mid-career physicians. So I highly recommend uh, that anybody who's interested check that out. My entire cohort was all people who, um, you know, potentially would want to take on a leadership role in some capacity in the future. And it gave us so much training and knowledge and skill sets that no other part of our education had ever provided us with. So I think that's the missing step in, in this paper. I've I've heard a lot of good things about, and the, the the paper was actually published in the same journal that um, ultimately became the American Association of Physician Leadership, the AAPL. But I've heard a lot of positive things about the Certified Physician Executive Program. And uh, now I, I myself have not taken the the course yet, but um, I, I it, it if we can have programs like that that help to springboard physicians into these uh, leadership positions, I think that that's that's overall a good thing. Absolutely. I would say this paper had some risk of bias uh, based on the trials. <laughs> <Absolutely>. <laughs> so how many hotcakes? Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm definitely biased on this one. So I'm going to say four, four hotcakes, not a full stack, not a half stack, but somewhere in between. That's a bold and meaningless stance. <laughs> <laughs> so, going, so going back to the bud tenders, we should go on to Paul's article that he picked. Yeah, this is <laughs> – I think my, my dream is to eventually have sort of a curbsider spinoff where it's just like Paul's Cannabis Corner. And like I just do, just do my, my thoughts on marijuana use. So <laughs> what are your thoughts? I don't even know. I'm so confused. Yeah, I, I don't know myself. That's why I'm reading all these, all these articles. So this is uh, from the Annals of Internal Medicine, uh, 2018. This is Marijuana Use, Respiratory Symptoms, and Pulmonary Function, a Systemic, Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. And – I chose this for the same reason I choose all my marijuana articles is that it's it's the use of marijuana. I think the prevalence is increasing and we know that. And I feel like I see a lot of it in my own patient population and, and a large part of it is recreational. Um, but there is a fair chunk that use it probably for self-medication, either of anxiety or for pain. Um, so it's I just I see a lot of it and I still struggle with exactly how to counsel patients about it. So we know um, don't use marijuana and then drive. But otherwise, the actual health risks, I feel, are still kind of fuzzy. And so anything that sort of helps broaden our knowledge of that, I feel, is useful. So I can just have a conversation with my patients about it. And so this, this patient, so this, this article looks at respiratory symptoms, pulmonary function by doing a review of the literature. And this, I've always sort of struggled with this because I, I just, I never quite know the answer to it. And so what they did is they looked, they started with, like most of these things do, uh, a bazillion articles and then winnowed them down to 22 observational interventional studies published between 1973 and 2018. They chose 1973 as the start date to look for because that's when Oregon decriminalized marijuana, which I thought was sort of a, an interesting and fun find. <laughs> and then what they did is they, they went through and they looked for um, studies that examined symptoms in relation to marijuana use, obstructive lung disease, pulmonary function, or other respiratory stuff. And, and in terms of symptoms, they looked specifically at cough, at sputum production, at wheezing, and at dyspnea. Um, and... And just sort of they went through all these studies and, and abstracted data that way. And so probably one of the strengths of this is just 
how they actually pulled the data out out from the studies. But then the results themselves, um, unfortunately, were, were kind of underwhelming to me, which I guess is still information. So even the stuff that actually showed an association, even this, which was mostly a symptoms-based stuff, so things like cough and sputum production and wheezing, they did find an association between marijuana use and those symptoms. The level of evidence is, is low. Um, and a lot of the studies were sort of at risk for bias. And one of the things they looked for in terms of bias is did the study look at marijuana users who also smoke tobacco? And you, you just see these sentences throughout for the, even with the evidence where they say things like showed a consistent trend towards an association. And when you're throwing that many qualifiers in, like you just, you, you know, the data are not super duper strong. Um, in terms of obstructive lung disease, they didn't say insufficient strength of evidence to actually make any definitive comments. Pulmonary function, specifically FEV1, FEC, and FEV1 to FEC ratio, insufficient evidence to make any kind of statements. Um, Interestingly, this measure of airway resistance and the specific conductance of airways, they actually did see a signal in the data that suggested that marijuana use uh, worsened those measures. And that's interesting because um, you can sometimes see changes there before you actually see the changes in the FEV1 and the FBC. So one of the one of the bottom lines they came away with is maybe, you know, there's just not enough exposure to actually impact uh, pulmonary function testing because, you know, you, your, your COPDers are smoking a pack of cigarettes a day for 30 years and your marijuana users are maybe smoking a joint or two a day. And so that the level of exposure, even though you're setting something on fire and inhaling it, is is substantially different. And then also the use of inhaled marijuana may be limited by its psychoactive properties. So you're just you're just not using quite as much of it to actually cause an impact. But at the end of the day, the point they said is that really what they need is further good evidence studies that actually look at pulmonary function tests uh, over time in marijuana users rather than sort of the, the data they abstracted currently. I'd like to hear them look or see them look at things like, you know, obstructive lung disease and it, like a hard endpoint that goes along with this. Because, I mean, like cough and sputum, it's kind of bothersome, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they have like developed COPD or something. Yeah, yeah, it, 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 that's exactly right. And like those sometimes I'm not even sure what setting the cough is in. If the cough happens after, you know, the patient has ripped a six foot bong hit, like I don't know that you can actually, so I don't even know how they sort of described cough. Uh, so it's, so yeah, it's, I, I feel like it's, so in getting to sort of my takeaway on this, and I refuse to give any amount of hotcakes, um, like I, I think it's admirable and I'm glad that we're sort of still forwarding this knowledge and looking at this thing because it is such a, a pertinent and germane topic and we need to be able to talk to our patients um, but I don't know that it's going to be able to change much in the way of the counseling that I do currently. I think I was still advised to just please be safe when you're using it. Um, and we just don't know enough really to talk about the long-term pulmonary outcomes, but please just be careful. Hmm. Sounds Great. fantastic. All right. I think now for something completely different. Netta's got a very different article next. Oh, Netta, I'll <laughs> buy you some time. Before we move on uh, to, to Netta's next article, I just wanted to point out, Paul, I'm highly suspicious that you are considering taking up a marijuana habit, and that's yes. why every week you're, <laughs> you're, you're doing articles on marijuana. This is kind of my fear that I'm going to lose my license because I'm going to have a reputation for someone who seems to have a deep invested interest <laughs> in marijuana stuff. Do, do so. you, Paul, do you have your own website with pot leaves all over it? <laughs> yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> And, and for, for our listeners who really like marijuana, make sure you, you tweet every marijuana article you have to Paul and Williams with a Z. Also, yeah, make At sure you self-identify as someone who really likes marijuana. That would be really helpful <laughs> to everybody. <I> <laughs>
All right. So uh, this one, I've got a little bit of a personal vested interest in this topic, and I actually think the findings are, are pretty powerful. So this article is by Blumenthal et al. It's the risk of methicillin-resistant Staph aureus and C. diff in patients with a documented penicillin allergy, a population-based matched cohort study, and this was in the BMJ in 2018. And so this was a prospective cohort study of uh, adults in the United Kingdom, both with and without documented penicillin allergy, and they're out Outcomes of interest were MRSA and C. diff infection and the use of non-penicillin antibiotic alternatives. So uh, the personal interest is that I've got a documented penicillin allergy, but who knows if it's real. But even beyond that, I've really um, become very interested in and passionate about antibiotic stewardship. And uh, I found some interesting background information here. So, you know, it's estimated that about 10 percent of all patients have a documented penicillin allergy but that 95% of reported penallergic patients are actually tolerant of the drug, and 80% of patients who had some kind of immediate hypersensitivity to penicillin at some point are no longer allergic after 10 years. So if we think about all the people we see and treat in the hospital and in our clinics with penicillin allergy, in reality, the vast majority of them are probably not. And I knew that kind of most probably weren't, but I don't know that I ever realized how strong the statistics were. And so, and of course, you know, with the increasing incidence and cost and morbidity and mortality attached to infections like MRSA and C. diff, I think antibiotic stewardship is more important than ever. So this study endeavored to actually assess that relationship between a penicillin allergy and then the development of MRSA or C. diff. And so um, they did this population they did this population-based matched cohort study of what you know are called general practice or GP patients in the UK, uh, and over 300,000 adults were enrolled in this database over a period of 20 years, from 1995 to 2015. And you know, probably not surprisingly, but this puts some numbers on it. In penicillin allergic patients, the adjusted hazard ratio for MRSA infections was 1.69 and C. diff was 1.25. And when you actually looked at the adjusted incidence rate ratios for the alternative antibiotic use in these patients, it was four for macrolides and clinda and two for fluoroquinolones. So, you know, kind of the bottom line of what they're finding is that patients with a penicillin allergy are being prescribed antibiotics like macrolides, clindamycin, and fluoroquinolones more frequently, and they do have a higher uh, hazard ratio of MRSA and C. diff infections. Oh, not my beloved Clinda. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I don't know why you like Clinda so much, Paul. I, I, I don't either. It, it's Patients, it, it, it upsets their stomach, and then, you know, it just blasts their gut flora. I, I don't care for it. Well, I mean, then there's the marijuana for that. <laughs> it just sort of settles you right out. Always comes back to the marijuana. Yeah. Please refer to my website for further information. Netta, we <laughs> we had a very uh, when I was when I was down south at my last job, we had a very active allergy and immunology clinic, and they would actually they were actually sort of publicizing this data to us because our our clinic was right down the hall. So they would say, "Yeah, like send us your penallergic patients, and we'll try to get that removed from their chart because we know that." There's worse outcomes for patients who don't have penicillins as an option if they're admit, you know, in their in their life, I guess, if they're uh, having getting treated for serious infections. So, I did find that I sent I sent one like 89 year old lady to try to have her pen allergy removed, and the allergist refused to give. It. They thought it was too dangerous to give it to her, even though Aww. it was like it was like 
80-some years ago that she had her supposed pen allergy. So I, I, I but most patients that I would send, um, you know, they would, I, I did not run into that problem. So I think maybe our listeners can like find, find a local allergist who, who they can pair with to do this. What kind of adherence did you have with that? Like, did patients go? Were they interested enough to actually have that removed as an allergy that they would go to this allergist? That's fascinating. It it wasn't it wasn't high, but we had a couple patients. Yeah, I mean, and I would just tell everybody, and just like you know, it's like flu shots and other things. Like some people would do would do it, some people wouldn't. But interesting. I, I actually routinely do this so when I when I'm intaking a brand new patient for in a new patient appointment. You know, I'm always going over those. The, you know, it's always a longer appointment, so it gives me a lot more time to do counseling mm-hmm. with the patient. And that's when I usually go through the allergy list like much more intensely, and I'll say, "Oh yeah, penicillin is listed as an allergy. Like, can you tell me a little bit about that?" And often I'll get, "Oh, yeah. you know, I had a medicine when I was little, and it was probably associated with some sort of viral thing that they shouldn't have had penicillin with." Or they'll say, oh, "My mom had a penicillin allergy, and so it's been listed ever since." And huh. usually I find that as an opportunity to really just educate the patient. Uh, but I do, I have sent several of my older patients. Hmm to um, the allergist, mostly because I'll say, you know, you have COPD, you know, you it's very possible you could get admitted for a very bad sickness. And, you know, having penicillin as an allergy might preclude us from really using some very good medicines for you. And when you explain it like that, usually I don't get much of a pushback. And they're like, oh, yeah, if I get sick, I would want to be able to have a good medicine for my treatment. So um, that's sort of one way I've sort of counseled my patients. The hospital that I currently work for uh, has actually started a, 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 a QI project to recapture all those patients and reclassify them appropriately. So it, it looks like around around five to ten percent of pen aller- pen allergic patients are actually truly allergic in our in our healthcare system. So that's a pretty significant cost savings if you were to extrapolate that across the entire enterprise. Wait, not ninety five percent. So so no. <laughs> so there, it's much more accurate wow. charting in your in your health system, I guess. Oh. Apparently, because we don't think that that a penicillin allergy is contagious. Uh, was that a pun? Or transmitted through uh, maternal fetal? <laughs> okay, Netta, just talk right through them. <laughs> you got, you got it. I'll just steamroll right over you. No, oh, I mean, thanks. you know, it's 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 no, it's fascinating that you know I'm I'm hearing from you guys that many of you are already doing this in your practice. And Matt, it sounds like where you were before was really good about this. I guess I haven't grown up in any systems where this was really top of mind, or that we had that great allergy and immunology practice right next door. So I think I've just taken all of my patients' penicillin allergies at face value you and not really pushed it beyond that. I'll tell you, you know, the the estimates of how long it takes to actually get tested for a penicillin allergy and have it either be refuted or confirmed is about three hours. Um, so, you know, it does take a little bit of time and it involves a series of intradermal injections and then the oral challenge. Um, but when you think about, as you've already talked about, the cost savings downstream and not just the cost savings, but, you know, hopefully putting our patients at a little bit reduced risk for infection like MRSA and C. diff, which honestly scares the bejesus out of me, I think it's worth it. And so I know when I read this article, I thought this is going to change my practice. I'm going to become better. I'm going to have it be my own little QI project where I try to actually pursue these penicillin allergies a little bit more thoughtfully than I have before. So how many hotcakes? I'm going to give this one five. I can't give it the max, but I'm going to do it. <laughs> I'll, I'll go along with it, Paul. I'll do five. I think, it, you know, to me, it, it actually will impact the way that I practice. 
Paul, maybe you'd be more comfortable with a marijuana-based uh, rating system. <laughs> Let's not perpetuate this either. I don't, I'm not comfortable with any Hey, guys, I think this is a good good place to end it. I think that was a great article, and I think we start ended on a high here. What do you think? Yeah, I think I think that's it. We we gotta we gotta let Netta go, and otherwise we're yeah. Her show's not her show's not as long as ours, so we got we got to get done. <laughs> and I hear Stewart I hear Stewart's was, gong sound gong. over there. <laughs> All right, well, thank everyone. I want to thank everyone for listening to another episode of the Curbsiders Monthly Journal Club. Um, please see our show notes for the references to all the articles discussed. If you want to know what else was on our reading list, you can either email or tweet at us for that info. And we really haven't had a a single person do that. Um, a special thanks to Sarah Roberts, who produces our show uh, every month. She does a fantastic job with our script as well as all of her prep. Um, she's yeah, totally awesome. And I also want to plug um, another show that Sarah has helped produce, and that's uh, a recent episode from our new Women in Medicine series. Um, I think we're going to try to do that, or she's going. you guys are going to try to do that like once a quarter, but I highly encourage our listeners to check it out if you haven't, because I know I learned quite a bit from it. Is there anything else anyone has to say? I thought that Women in Medicine episode was absolutely fabulous. And if I could ever help out with one of those in the future, I would be honored. I'm sure uh, Leah and Shreya and the rest of the team uh, will hear this and uh, we'll, we will pass it on to them. Awesome. Uh, Netta, before before we get to the outro, did you did you want to plug your show for the audience? Absolutely. So I was saying with the guys here at the Curbsiders that our two podcasts are like these perfect complementary sorts of, uh, you know, we used a food analogy that if you listen to both of our podcasts, it's like the perfect diet of medical <laughs> education. So primary care reviews and perspectives. It's a monthly uh, podcast. It's about three and a half hours of content that comes out on the first of every month, but it's divided up into to 15 to 25 minute segments um, meant to be fun and high yield and easy to listen to and uh, we highly encourage you to check it out at primarycarewrap.com okay well this has been another episode of the curbsiders bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole yummy You can, get, you can get show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and get on our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. We love to hear your feedback at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. We are also on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at the Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And I'm Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham, here with... I'm Christopher Chu. Netta, you can go. Paul always goes last. Oh, oh, great. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Netta Freja. And this has been Paul Nelson Williams. And good night. Oh, hi, Paul. (laughs) And thank you to our social media team, Hannah Abrams on Twitter, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Instagram, and of course, Chris the Chew Man right here with us on Facebook. (laughs) That's me. (laughs) 